This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, today, today as the conversation is heard for the first time, actually, on Easter Sunday, 2019, let's take a different look at renewal, because isn't that what Easter Sunday is all about? Rejuvenation, right? Life, renaissance, uh, all of those things that start with re, uh, starting again. And this renewal offers us an opportunity for the first time ever in the 18 years that we've been doing this radio program, The God Show. For the first time, we're going to look at renewal by taking a stroll in the forest. And our guide is going to be Dr. Matthew Sleek. And often, I'll do the introduction, Dr. Matthew Sleek. Um, but I, I would rather that you told people about your story. You can take as long as you want to, because at the end of an hour, I'll just say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, I think most of your listeners would have said goodbye long before. <laughs> well, introduce everybody to yourself. Uh, I'm Matthew Sleeth. I'm, I'm married uh, and have uh, two grown children and one grandchild. I live in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, I uh, have been a number of occupations in life. I was a carpenter. Uh, for seven years before I went to undergraduate school, and I was a, a physician and an emergency room doctor and eventually ran an emergency department. And um, in my mid to late 40s, uh, had a occasion to encounter and meet the Lord. <laughs> and that changed everything. Interesting and transition it, because, because you really paid no attention whatsoever to the Lord before that. None. I I really um, I had come from a really pretty modest uh, circumstances. Uh, going to college, that sort of thing, was never in the uh, in the plan or the books. Uh, and I did get that chance, and becoming a physician just opened up a whole world. When I was in college, it was like a kid in a candy store. And uh, to me, science was so powerful at um, you know, solving problems, and, uh, and so my worldview was scientific. If you couldn't reproduce it, uh, if you couldn't measure it, it didn't exist. And uh, that, that was uh, the way I approached life um, in, in, uh, until mid, mid to late 40s. And there was a kind uh, of a magic moment for you, though, that I was reading about. Uh, as you were looking around for something to read while you were whiling away some time. Yes, I uh, was in the hospital one Sunday morning. It was very, very slow, and I'm a voracious reader. And I, I just, if you've set me idle without a book in my hands and I'm indoors, I kind of go a little nuts. And so I went looking for something to read, and on a waiting room table, uh, 
it was strewn with uh, old National Geographics and peoples and the normal stuff they have hanging around waiting rooms. Uh, <laughs> there was an orange book, and it said Holy Bible on it. And I thought, you know, we've I've never read one of these. And we don't own one, and our house at that time had a library. Books grew in it uh, uh, kind of almost by magic. And um, But we didn't own a Bible, and it's it's a long book, and I wasn't going to be able to finish it before the first patient came in, and, and so I just stole it. And, uh, <laughs> and, <clears throat> and then it's a big book. Where do you start reading in it? You know, it can be kind of overwhelming. It's a collection of books, and... Uh, uh, the the good news for me, or I view it as good news now, is that my parents did not name me numbers, uh, but uh, they named me Matthew, and I started in the book of Matthew, and that went much smoother than <laughs> starting in the book of numbers. All I want to know, though, I mean, having heard that story and introducing yourself to the Bible and having a, a, a really dramatic change in your life uh, as a result of going from Matthew on further uh, in the Holy Scriptures. Um, did the hospital ever threaten to sue you? Did you ever hear from their attorney about uh, having to uh, to recompense for the use of that Bible that you, as you said, stole? No, I've heard from a group called the Gideons since then that they, they set these traps and that was the expected uh, result, and that I've been forgiven. So. But, but Matthew, how sudden was this metamorphosis, though, uh, in your life? You were a learned man uh, academically. Uh, you had already you had already taken care of all those responsibilities. Successful physician and an atheist. Well, it there yes, there's a backstory to it, and. And that is that uh, at at some point along the way, uh, bad things started happening in our family. And uh, my wife's only brother drowned in front of my children. And that had this huge impact on my children and and my wife, who became very, very sad, uh, understandably, after that, but really went into a depression. Um, and then I had a, a patient uh, stalk me and become obsessed with me mm-hmm. and do some scary things. And eventually, uh, the police found uh, in his closet his mother, who he taped up and beaten to death. And um, mm. and then the the third uh, bad thing that happened was I I got home on a on a fall morning. I'd been working the night shift and 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 got home and it was a perfect day in new england the skies have never been so blue and my wife uh, walked from the little village post office we lived right in a, a village on, on a harbor in maine and said uh, matthew something bad is happening in manhattan we need to turn on the television uh-huh. and we watched as this horror unfolded in manhattan and the twin towers uh, came down and then uh, shortly after the second tower came down, I got a call from my next-door neighbor who had a son, my son's age. They'd just grown up together. And she said, Matthew, I need your help in getting Jamie from school. His dad was in the first plane. Mm. Mm. And in, mm. 
in the midst of all that darkness, uh, I I woke up to the fact that there's evil on the planet, and that evil is not a scientific concept. It cannot be measured. It shouldn't be reproduced, and nonetheless, it's real. And if there's evil in the world, I wanted to know what there was on the other side and to try to understand that. Uh, and that really re led to the search that eventually had me pick up that Bible in a waiting room and read it. After uh, that litany, after that litany, though, of those terrible things that happened in and around your life, what was the first good thing that happened? I, th I think... <laughs> Really, the first good thing was to have somehow that question of what is good. Um, in the emergency department, I'd certainly seen plenty of bad things, and I'd seen evil there. But when you're running a trauma code on a Jane or a John Doe, as they call them, in other words, somebody that's come into the emergency department by ambulance uh, who may have dropped down in you know, a shopping mall or something like that, and no one knows who they are. And I often would kind of marvel that I'd step back and there'd be 20 people doing everything that they could to save this one person who didn't even have a name, uh, you know, beyond a, a Jane or a, a John Doe. Uh, there's also something very, very fine in us, too, and, and something good. And I wanted to know more about the source of that. I want to tell the audience about where the forest comes in, because at the very beginning, I promised them a guest who would guide them through a forest. The book is called Reforesting Faith, and the subtitle is What Trees Teach Us About the Nature of God and His Love for Us. Now, I have to tell you up front, that after 12,632 guests that I have had just on this program, uh, this is the first time that I have acknowledged an absolute, total, and committed love affair with trees. Little trees, Christmas trees, sequoias, pines, uh, you name it. So when this book came in, and my producer, Rosemary, and I, uh, began to look through it. We were kind of pre-sold. But then there was another chapter that happened, and another chapter after that, and another chapter after that. Because in Reforesting Faith, you, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, bring trees into so many parts of the Bible, and that had never happened with us before. Talk about that. Well... Trees uh, are the most mentioned living thing in the Bible other than God and man. Uh, and there's a, a tree on the first page of the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you were to take a highlighter out and start highlighting in Genesis 1, and you highlighted every sentence that has a tree in it, by the time you got just to the end of the third chapter, you will have highlighted a third of, of the, the sentences in there. And, and 
every major character and every major theologic event in Scripture has a tree marking the spot. There's a tree on the first page of the Bible. The first psalm tells us to be like a tree. There's a page on the first page of uh, the New Testament and a, a, a tree on the page of the first page of the New Testament and a tree on the last page of Scripture. The Bible refers to itself as a tree of life. The only thing Jesus ever harms is a tree. The only thing that can harm him is a tree. Um, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and that sort of began to fascinate me at some point. Uh, the the and and some of that really started because I've always loved trees. I've planted them my whole life. I tree lined the street that I, where I did my residency. Uh, planted trees when my kids were born, uh, that sort of thing. But when I read that Bible for the first time and became a Christ follower, um, I there was then a disconnect. Uh, it, it seemed like in church. Trees were never talked about, uh, and as a matter of fact, when I volunteered to plant trees around the church that we had started going to, I was told I had the theology of a tree hugger, and that was not a compliment. <laughs> but probably it was not thought of as being unkind to you, uh, because you seemed to hug trees throughout your your uh, temporal and spiritual life. Do you consider yourself an evangelical environmentalist? I, I, I've been given that title, and I'm I'm uh, mo- mostly okay with that. Evangelical often means things these days that I are um, political. Um, I'm certainly an evangelical in the sense that I believe that we're to go and give the good news that uh, Christ. Uh, rose from the dead and 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 offers us redemption um so i'm i'm quite happy to take the title uh, in that sense now here's a question that i've never asked any of my guests in all these years never had a case oh goodness to... i'm bracing myself no here. not at all i think this is is going to be an easy one for you because i i really tend to avoid bibliologists and i try to avoid those folks who base every answer to every question on some part of the scripture, I would much rather always hear what they think. And if uh, if scripture happens to be a part of it, uh, then it's fine. But I asked you to join us so that people could find out more about Matthew's sleep. Uh, no, what I want to know from you as a person who is more than casually familiar with Scripture, what does Jesus know about trees? I mean, I've been there, and there's not a whole lot of them around. Well, I would say that they've been overlooked. Um, This is a show that's airing on Easter. And uh, Easter morning, you know, we get our nice clothes on and open uh, candies and and that sort of thing. because it is such a festive time of renewal and everything. Uh, But I'd like to take us to that morning. And when Mary went down to the tomb where Christ had been laid, and it's it's three days after he's been buried, um, and anyone who's lost 
someone they dearly love knows that by about day three, it's the nadir point. You just, you feel awful. Your eyes are tired from crying. Uh, it's just a terrible time. And uh, the good news was the tomb was empty. And she turned and she saw Jesus. And Jesus was not recognizable to her at first. Um, she mistook him for someone else, and she didn't mistake him for a soldier or a grave digger. She mistook him for a gardener. That mistake is no mistake. Uh, Christ is a gardener, and he's come back as the new Adam, as Scripture says. And he appeared like that, and I love the Rembrandt painting of this. And Christ has a big straw gardener's hat on and a, a tool, digging tool in his belt and a shovel in his hands. And um, I think Rembrandt really, as he always did in his religious paintings, just absolutely captured the essence of things. And so trees are utterly central to the story of Christ. And I think they're they're all over the place uh, as he talks and walks and, and that sort of thing. I, I said uh, in a kind of a skipping uh, over the entire scripture that trees are the only thing that he ever harmed and the only thing that could harm him. And um, in fact, Christ was really hard to kill. Uh, people tried to stab him when he was born, when he came into his ministry. They tried to stone him, and that didn't work uh, at all either. Uh, they tried to throw him off a cliff, and, and, and that didn't work. You, I don't think you could starve him to death. He could go without a meal for 40 days, get in a ring with the toughest opponent in the universe, and walk out a winner after three rounds. And I don't think there's any point in trying to drown him. He'd just walk away from it. But um, the only thing uh, that can harm Jesus is a tree. And he tells people this, I must be lifted up on a tree. And his language is so organic. He's talking about soils and vines and, and fruit constantly. Um, and, uh, and so I would disagree. I would say the trees are pretty central to what's going on with Jesus. And then if we fast forward to the last page of the Bible, we, ha we have a picture of heaven there. And, and it's a place with trees where the trees, the leaves of the tree of life heal the nations. And, and we just get this beautiful uh, picture of, of a place um, where the central feature are trees. That's what God's throne in heaven faces. If we think about the thrones in our houses, the recliners and the sofas, uh, they generally face televisions. God's face is a tree. So I would, I would say trees, big deal to Jesus. <laughs> Well, yes, and the biggest deal of this Holy Week, of course, had to take place, certainly with the resurrection, preceded by the crucifixion on a tree. It's, it's on a tree, and if we back up to find the validity for that in the Scripture, um, one of the most beautiful lines of hope and looking forward to the time of Easter is from Job. Job's the you know most ancient or second most ancient writings that are in Scripture, and G and and Job says, uh, 
look at me, things are terrible. I'm paraphrasing, by the way, here. But there's hope for a tree, that a tree, even when it's cut down, can spring back to life. And and so Scripture, again and again, uh, points to trees as a model or a metaphor of resurrection. We're doing this program, uh, as I said, heard for the first time this Easter Sunday morning, and then forever, uh, because uh, we are fortunate enough to be doing this on the Internet, on the Star Worldwide Networks, where you can find it on demand all the time. And we're doing the show about renewal uh, and about growth uh, and all of those things that we've been talking about so far in this program as guided through the forest by Dr. Matthew Sleeth, executive director of an organization called Blessed Earth, gentleman who has been recognized by periodicals such as Newsweek as one of the nation's most influential evangelical leaders, and he's, uh, he's just somebody who does a lot of speaking, and fortunately for us, quite a bit of writing, the author of Serve God, Save the Planet, and the introduction to the Green Bible. Tell us about that, the Green Bible. The Green Bible is, um, I'll, I'll tell you how it came about. <laughs> After the pastor uh, called me a tree hugger, <laughs> I thought, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the pastor's right. Maybe I'm, I'm brand new to this whole thing called Christianity. I don't know. Um, and so I went and read through a Bible from the beginning to the end, underlining verses that were really about uh, God caring about the planet, telling us to care about the planet, uh, etc. And and I realized that there was so much there that was uh, not being talked about, um, uh, not being acknowledged. God loves the planet. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. It kind of rings out in in, in Psalm 24. And um, so I began talking about that and everything. And the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Harper One heard me give a talk on it. And the, the end product was the Green Bible, uh, where we got a number of people from different... Um, uh, backgrounds uh, within Judeo-Christian uh, world. Uh, Desmond Tutu wrote the foreword. I wrote the introduction. The Pope wrote the next essay, and I think Wendell Berry is after that. That's pretty um, good company. Yeah, I beat the Pope out, I'm telling you. <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, so it has the essays in the front, and then the lines that are... Um, uh, pertain to caring for creation are in green. Now, they're, they're not the same ones that I underlined. Somebody else did that, uh, but they're there. And uh, it was also printed using uh, uh, paper that was partially recycled, and it's got, a, I think, a hemp cover on it and that sort of thing. Um, and that's what the Green Bible was, or is. Do you mind if I call you Matthew? Because Dr. Sleeth... I would be delighted. Now, please, call me Matthew. Yeah, because, see, I'd next be would be Mr. McMahon or something like that. And that doesn't sound like the God Show at all. 
So it's the Matthew and Pat program. Pat, I think here in front of everybody else, I'm just going to have to say that I think one of the goals in my life is going to be meeting you and eating with you somewhere. (laughs) Can we do that? That's sensational. Do we have to be vegetarians? We do not. Um, when uh, when Abraham <laughs> met the the angels of the Lord under the oak of Mamre, by the way, uh, Abraham ran out and picked a, uh, uh, the fatted calf out, and his wife made uh, fresh-made bread, and they had put cheese curds on it. To me, that's a cheeseburger. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's sensational, because when I found out that you had moved from Maine to Kentucky, I keep thinking about the fact that in Kentucky, a wonderful culture there, magnificent universities, great basketball. And the product that I think of ingesting, however, would be bourbon. And so that's the only thing I can think of that's associated. And you left Maine and all of those incredible lobster rolls. Matthew, what were you thinking? Yes. <laughs> Well, if only I could put the two together, I'd have a good gout attack, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think God would probably heal you somewhere along the line. Uh, and by the way, by the way, I don't, I don't think of tree hugger as being particularly pejorative, even when it's intended to be. Because if you hug somebody or something, that's a lovely sign of personal affection and your affection and all the people that I know that really feel affectionately toward vegetation, the environment, uh, trees, plants, flowers. Those are some of my favorite people. Are you concerned about the misuse of nature? You know, uh meaning that some people might come to worship uh, nature? Is that, is that your no, question? No, thinking, thinking more in terms of the industrial misuse of nature or the, careless, oh, yeah. the carelessness that we are all guilty of at one time or another. Yes. The, and I'm worried about it for a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the one would be, you know, just our general health. The, if the planet's healthy, we're healthy. Um, and, but I'm, I'm very concerned about the message that our generation is sending to the, this youngest generation that's going to take over next. What is that? And I think, I think we're telling them we, we don't have hope. We don't live in optimism. We're concerned about ourselves. You go fix it. And I I really believe that when we show love to our children, um, we don't give them everything, but we teach them to value what's valuable and um, uh, to pass on a planet that is in in good shape should be at the top of our priorities. Uh, That really goes outside of politics or anything. I don't know whether the 100 years from now people are going to be Democrats or Republicans, that Democrats and Republicans may be as well known by then as optimists and popularities, which were in, in you know, when Jesus was walking the planet. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know any of that, but I know that they will need uh, air, 
that's clean and water that's clean and forests to walk in and wildlife to uh, to wonder at. And uh, I'm I'm concerned that we uh, are not we are not as concerned as we should be about what's going to happen to this next generation. But as you read some of the environmental reports, and I'm not talking about as you read them in political missives. I'm talking about as you read them from concerned scientists and you who have written a book called Reforesting Faith, what trees teach us about the nature of God and his love for us. Don't you sometimes experience your own agony in the garden? I, yes. <laughs> I, yes, there are dark times when I wonder what, what is coming um, uh, down the path for the next generation. And what I'm helped by sometimes is going to examples of when we got it right. Uh, when I was a child, I never saw a bald eagle. It's the symbol of our country, and I never saw one. And I grew up in a fairly rural area um, and, and really visited some extremely rural areas as a child, never saw one. And uh, the, the demise of the eagles, bald eagles seemed to be almost assured. I think there were, were only a couple thousand nesting pairs in the, in the northern hemisphere. Um, and, and that's been reversed. I have friends in Maine who the, the bald eagles are almost a nuisance. <laughs> There's so <laughs> many now. And, and so I've seen some things that were seem to be very dark or that they would never change. And I've seen those periods, and then I've seen change happen. Um, and so I just have to work for that change and pray for it. Uh, and at some point, the rest is up to God. Let me share a positive experience that I had that you just reminded me about. I was on a ferry boat sure. between Vancouver and Victoria. And I don't know whether you've spent much time around British Columbia, uh, but uh, whether you're in a city or whether you're in the countryside, it's, uh, it's really environmentally stunning. And uh, so I, I asked one of the people who were operating the ferry boat about the white moss that I saw in the trees on the many, many, I mean, hundreds of islands that you navigate your way through going from Vancouver to Victoria Island. And I said, what, what kind of moss is that that I see throughout all of those trees? <laughs> he said, with a smile on his face, it's not moss. Those are eagles. And I thought, oh, I, I was stunned. Hundreds. And as you said, I had only, not just bald eagles, but I had only seen most eagles in zoos and aviaries. And to see trees filled with eagles native to British Columbia. Well, uh, listen, it was not only good news, but it was a stunning experience that I'll never forget. Uh, how, how lucky you were to have seen that. And, and, I, and I think it does fit about this. Although things look bleak, it, the, our response is really roll up our sleeves, get to work, um, 
ask, ask for, you know, our God's help if you believe in God, and I do, um, and go to it. I I remember about 10 years ago, I was at a college in North Carolina, and I'd been teaching for uh, two or three days to a group about environmental things, creation care, um, whatever. And it was a it was at Catawba College, and there was assembled quite a variety of people, and we had folks from Africa there and uh, Latin America and kind of young and old, and we moved into a kind of final question and answer. And a lovely young girl about 10 years old got up, and uh, everyone was very quiet, and she said, I, I'm, I'm worried, Dr. Sleeth, what's going to happen in my generation and then she said the question is it too late um mm. you know because these kids hear a lot of things and imagine hearing it's too late uh to you know that anyway so i thought for a second and i said i want to take you to a swimming pool in my hometown in lexington i said it is the last day that the pool was open in the summer and I decided I would go over um, with my wife because uh, it's right by us. We live on the big park downtown. And and I said, uh, and apparently every other person in Lexington had the same idea. You could barely move around the pool. And so I'm kind of in the deep swimming part, and this little fella pops up right in front of me, and we're having a talk, and it turns out that he's from Liberia. And then... Uh, and then there's this other fellow playing with him uh, who was a little Asian uh, uh, young man, and he had a super soaker, it's called, which is a squirt gun that was oh, yeah. as big as he was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I would have given you my younger brother for that thing when I was a kid, and it was just delightful. <laughs> and then and then over in the kids' pool, they had this 15-foot blow-up alligator, and all the kids were piled on it, and wrestling and everything, and um, and they were every color of the rainbow. And and I told her when I was a child, um, there was uh, I grew up with no air conditioning, and there was a pool in the town uh, near us, and we didn't belong to it because all of my first cousins were biracial, and they couldn't go with me to that pool. And to go from that. And thinking that might never change to going to a pool where none of these kids cared. Yeah. I said, that's really, that's a miracle. That took a lot of love and it took a lot of hard work and it took sacrifice from people. And I think that's the same thing uh, that's going to happen uh, if we succeed here in, 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 in making our planet, you know, habitable for each generation as it comes along, it's going to take some miracles. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take sacrifice, but it's doable. I'm glad you told that story about the pool because we're broadcasting. My end of the broadcast is from Phoenix, Arizona, and this community is a town full of swimming pools, uh, private ones in uh in back of homes, uh, public pools, and water parks. So the people who are listening in this area know exactly what you're talking about, particularly when you mention the super soaker that 
very familiar to them. Are you, um, are you one who believes that the industrial use of lumber is sinful? No, I do not. I've been uh, a carpenter. Uh, I still uh, make things with wood. I believe that God gave the trees to us to, to steward. Uh, and part of stewarding trees is using them. Uh, but it's, it's like eating food. You know, is food good or bad? Well, the question is how much food you eat when <laughs> and, and where. And you can certainly eat too much and, and develop diabetes and kill yourself. Um, or you can manage and steward that. And, and it's vital for life. And I believe trees are vital for life on this planet. Um, I don't believe they should be all put in a tree park and never touched again. But I, I believe there has to be a uh, uh, more of a concerted effort to keep trees up in places on the planet where they are hard to regrow. For instance, the rainforests of this planet. Um, mm. If you cut trees down in northern New England, there's a joke. What do you call a clear cut in 100 years? A dense forest. They simply grow up. There's nothing you can do to stop them. But that's not true with lots of areas in the world. They cut their trees down in Scotland, and there aren't trees there anymore. They don't just grow up. And so I think we need to uh, identify those places on the planet that need to keep trees up and then those places where you can harvest and, and replant, and, and that works well. Does it seem to you, uh, and this is one of those kind of talk show questions, and I have no idea what your answer is going to be, but I just know that when we're talking about trees, we're talking about an almost infinite variety as far as the species are concerned. And some, uh, as you've just said, when you're talking about the New England forest, uh, some seem to be not only readily usable, uh, but also so clearly capable of reproducing themselves that there doesn't seem to be a problem in that area, as opposed to the Amazonian rainforests that are in real trouble now. I'm thinking in terms of Christmas tree farms, for example, that mm -hmm. in the holidays, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of different kinds of furs are cut down and then they are displayed and then they are discarded. And then you walk through a forest of redwoods some of them predating Jesus on the planet. And you think that all trees can't be the same in the eyes of God. What do you think? Very, very interesting point. There are um, trees which uh, seem to get a higher regard in Scripture. And uh, the cedars of Lebanon it's, uh, are are much higher in, 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 in the language that's used around them and the regard and the fact that they're used to build uh, the temple in Jerusalem mm -hmm. um, and Solomon's tree house, that sort of thing was made out of them. Uh, and, and so the equivalent to those for us might be the sequoia or the redwoods. Um, 
and uh, it it might be a teak tree in in Brazil or something. So um, I think many areas of the world have trees which are more magnificent um, and longer lived uh, than than others. So all trees are not created equal. You're absolutely right. What I found in looking at the, you know, what does God think about trees, though, is that he has, it seems like a pattern almost of when he interacts with his prophets and, and that sort of thing, when it's Elijah or Jonah or or Moses that he meets by this burning bush, he, he tends to do it by a, a tree that has no particular magnificence to it. And I think of that almost as when I used to talk to my kids and want to say something real important to them. I remember once I snapped at my daughter and I was wrong. I had I, gotten the story wrong and she hadn't done, you know, what I I'd accused her of or whatever. And I got down on my knee and looked her right in the eyes and, you know, said, I'm sorry. Um, and it, but it, it seems as if God gets down on his knee to talk to his prophets in the Bible by some very uh, unspecial trees, as it were. How do you talk to your grandchildren about the future of the environment here on Earth? Well, my the uh, I have one grandchild uh, who's going to turn three here pretty soon, and and one on the way. Um, and uh, unfortunately, she's on the other side of the planet. She's in Kenya, but we do talk uh, using a. Uh, an iPhone, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't. I don't think I've had too many talks uh, so far about what the future of the planet's like for. Um, but there's a very interesting talk that she's had with me. Every night before she goes to sleep, she recites the first psalm, and uh, which tells her to be like a tree. And of course, her father's a pediatrician, but he's uh, he loves trees and they've planted trees there already. So I think the most important we lesson that we give our children or our grandchildren aren't necessarily the ones that we're saying, it's what we're doing. Um, so if she sees her dad uh, take time to plant a tree, and right here in Lexington there's a tree planted for her when she was born, that when they come back for a furlough year next year, you know, I'll take her and, and show her and everything, that, that says just as much uh, as, as giving a talk. <laughs> Let, let's Let's go plant a tree, says a whole lot to a grandchild. I planted three for my three children in Israel when I was there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, of course, obviously, forest land set aside just for that, even though most of Israel looks like most of Arizona. Uh, it's, uh, it's still uh, a wonderful area for those kinds of remembrances. Uh, by the way, let me suggest, please, if I may, and I, I really feel a kinship with you, so I'm going to extend our friendship here uh, that has la- lasted now for a matter of 40 minutes or so. Uh, I'm going to tell you that when your grandchildren get a little older and they are capable of understanding that when Grandpa Matthew talks about going to heaven at some time in the distant future, that there is now the opportunity to actually create a pod 
in which Grandpa Matthew can be buried, from which comes a tree. Did you know that? Yes. Um, it's it's interesting that uh, that the, the manner in which we uh, uh, treat the dead is getting greener. It seems like uh, lately, and there are there are places where you can be buried and have a tree planted over you. Um, not everybody has access to those, but people can get online and see this. Which do you, are you referring to a particular uh, place? I just actually saw it recently online, and uh, it's uh, uh, it's something that I I didn't pursue in uh, in great measure because. I don't plan on going anywhere. <laughs> but it, there was a picture of a very large pod that, uh, that a body could fit in and, and a young sapling coming out of that. And uh, no, I've, I've heard about uh, uh, different organizations that will plant trees in cemeteries uh, on your plot and... Uh, but however, I find nothing wrong with the idea of not the perpetuity of it so much, but the green factor. That's kind of nice. It is. Uh, the traditional burial is pretty uh, environmentally uh, expensive, as it were, you know, caskets and vaults and, and um uh, embalming and that sort of thing, and and I think I'd rather be buried a, a little bit more uh, uh, in the manner of the tree pod <laughs> growing I up. I think it would be uh, uh, right, a- absolutely, where that bourbon is made, uh, right down the street from you. <laughs> uh, when you know, uh, and when yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just thinking that you know when I had the occasion to go back to where. I helped plant the first trees that I planted. I, I grew up in a little town called Woodfield, Maryland. There were uh, so aptly named. There were two things there: woods and fields. Uh-huh. And um, and uh, as a uh, first grader, they had just built a new elementary school there. And uh, my father and my grandfather and I planted trees around the school. And um, it was the first all-electric school in the nation, and Lady Bird Johnson came out and inspected our mm-hmm. school and our trees and everything. Mm-hmm. And I had occasion to go back to that school with my daughter um, a few years ago, and I was stunned by two things. One, how small those classrooms were. <laughs> they seemed so gigantic. <laughs> When I was a little kid, and yeah. I couldn't even sit in one of those chairs. <laughs> and two, how gigantic those trees had become oh. over time. And, uh, you know, the, both my father and my grandfather passed away, um, but that they left a mark there. Uh, and children climb in those trees and play in them all the time. Those children don't know that. But what a lovely gift. Uh, to the future, to plant those trees. You've spent most of your time, uh, at least the time that you've talked to me about this on the air and the time that I've read about, you've spent most of your time uh, in the east and southeast. Have you ever seen a sequoia forest? Well, I came out to uh, Phoenix 
and uh, a number of years ago and looked on a map and it said Sequoia Forest. <laughs> and I shouldn't even admit this on the air, but I thought, ah, giant Sequoia. <laughs> uh, I think it probably said Saguaro Forest, did it not? Yes. I missed that. <laughs> Pardon me for correcting you and, on the air. It, it, no, you you corrected what the problem was. <laughs> and I put it in the GPS, and I got there, and I said, this is a desert. There's nothing but cactus there. <laughs> but they have their own majesty. Uh, they do. And one of my goals is to make it to Arizona when the flowers are blooming, when the desert comes Gorgeous, alive. gorgeous. And, yeah. and remember... We have century plants here, and that's not just the name that's attached casually. Uh, but in California, uh, the sequoia forest, if you haven't seen it, uh, is truly something that you'll want to wander through yourself. And if ever there was a problem with a lapse of faith on your part, uh, you would have no problem regaining it because it's... An amazing experience. Yes, I, I have had the opportunity on a number of occasions to be in those, uh, made some films in in them uh, a number of years ago, uh, got the chance to be in, in Muir Woods by myself one morning, oh. um, and with the, the Cathedral Grove there, oh, it's, you know, we we go through life and we make ourselves God and it's nice to see something bigger than us. It <laughs> yes. isn't even talking. The Muir know? woods, uh, in the, uh, suburban areas outside of the San Francisco Bay area. Yeah. Just North of it there of, yeah. it, of itself, truly spiritual. Let me borrow your subtitle for a moment to ask you before we run out of time, the mm -hmm. title of the book, reforesting faith, by Dr. Matthew Sleeth, that's S-L-E-E-T-H. The subtitle is What Trees Teach Us About the Nature of God and His Love for Us. What is that that trees teach us about the nature of God? Because God used a tree as the workhorse metaphor throughout all of Scripture, uh, it, for me, there has to be a, a really good purpose. And I think... Um, some of the reasons that God uses a tree is because, number one, they actually do give us life. When God calls something a tree of life, that metaphor has got to work at every level. It's thousands of years between when that's written uh, to 19, or, uh, 1775 when oxygen is actually discovered to be coming from plants. Um, and, and so... Uh, so it's a, a metaphor that holds at every level as far as that goes. Um, I think trees are beautiful. And, and Genesis 2.9 uh, says that trees are beautiful in God's eyes. And that's a one-off line in Scripture. So we, we're, we've got a, an aesthetic that's established there. Um, the third thing is that trees are always giving. Uh, I'm sure that a tree lands on somebody and kills them occasionally, but as an ER doctor, I never even saw that. In By and large, our interaction with trees as humans is we always come out ahead. I'm not sure that the trees do. 
they're always giving to us. They're giving oxygen. They're giving food. If you were somehow able to magically subtract everything made out of a tree, um, you couldn't make it through the day. Um, the trees, uh, you know, give food. They give um, uh, they give the the structures for our homes. Uh, they give us paper. They give us toilet paper. They give us medicines. Uh, there are water mains in New York City that are over a century old that are simply trees that have been hollowed out. Mm -hmm. We have subs in our nuclear fleet whose main bearings are made out of ligum vitae, out of wood. Um, and so um, God is trying to teach us about his nature, I believe, which is always giving. God is just constantly trying to give to us, to give life. Um, uh, to give meaning and beauty and, uh, and, and to sustain us. And, um, and, and I think it's the, the, the nature of God that he is so giving and so loving and yet so quiet and elusive sometimes that we, we need to go and make ourselves still and listen um, and listen for the voice of the Lord. Uh, and, and so I think those are some of the things that trees teach us about God. And he decided to use these, by the way. It wasn't me. Um, <laughs> the, he put them in Scripture. <clears throat> when I was reading Reforesting Faith, and now having listened to you for almost an hour, I'm given to believe that while you're not ashamed to be called a tree hugger, I don't think you're also ashamed to be called an optimist. But with that thought in mind, in the eyes of God and in God's company, so that you cannot lie, how did you answer that child? And how would you answer that child today when that child asked you, is it too late? Yes. Well, I, I, I did answer by giving an example of a time where I thought it was hopeless. And I actually begin that answer by telling her about 1968 Martin Luther King uh, being killed and how all the cities around me caught fire. Baltimore, Washington, D.C., 1,100 businesses burned down in Washington. And if you had taken a snapshot at that moment, you would have said it's hopeless. I don't even think you would have guessed that America would have survived. Um, but here we are. And um, and, and so I answered her that, and I would answer um, that I believe that people are going to wake up to the importance of of trees and of the environment. I think we've been lulled uh, to sleep a bit, um, but part of my reason for writing this book was to wake up the church. I believe that people of faith can be very, very powerful. Um, they can do great harm, and they have in the past or they can accomplish great things. And I believe uh, we face a time where the church needs to be known for what it's for, not just what it's against. And to be for um, forests, to be for uh, 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 trees in everyone's life, I think is a winning, uh, it's, a, it's a winning formula. His name is Matthew Sleeth. He's an MD a husband, uh, a father, and one of my favorite guests, 
The name of the book is Reforesting Faith. You know what I'm going to do right now, Matthew? I'm going to go home and hug my wife and then hug that tree in my backyard. Thank you so much. Yes. The God Show on the Star Worldwide Networks.